Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. My mom's my mom's Bab movie, Bab Barbara. Oh, was Yentl. I thought I thought you said bad movie. No, Babs. Babs movie. Your mom's Babs movie. <laughs> that really doesn't sound good when you say it like that. <laughs> it, it's sort of lost all meaning to me. Yes. We have a lot to talk about. Okay. I feel like this is a this is a we're starting a new series. Would you like Woo-hoo. to? I I have been fearing that we uh, all week I've been I, and I haven't. Uh, I haven't said anything to you about it, but I've been really worried that I've been watching the wrong movie. What movie are we, in fact, talking to- about tonight? Tonight we're talking about The Heist. <laughs> <laughs> this is why people don't talk to you at parties, <laughs> because you break their trust. What movie are we doing tonight for real? <laughs> tonight we're doing one of the magician movies from 2006. <laughs> <laughs> from Hollywood's 2006 Double Dipper. That's right. We're doing the prestige. Oh, thank goodness. That is <laughs> that is a relief. I up to this moment there was doubt. Um, so we're doing the prestige. We're starting our uh, our magician movies series. Uh, yes. Pretty excited about that. We have to talk about. Um, we've got to talk about Star Trek now. Because you we didn't last week. It came out. I know it's a little late. Last week it came out and you didn't. You hadn't seen it yet. We got to do a little mini a mini uh, kibitz review. Uh, okay. The little one, because you're baby, you're kind a of a one. downer on it now, and I'm, that makes me upset. So we're going to talk about that. I don't want to be a downer. And then we're gonna. What else are we going to talk about? We got to talk about our trailers. Yes. And then we're going to talk and about. We're going to talk about our movie, and then we're going to go to bed. So what do you, would you like to talk about first? First of all, this is the next reel. Welcome everybody. Thank you all for joining us, and uh, I am Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Uh, say hello, Andy. Booyah. And Booyah. Uh, and we're going to be ta- uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of like a high, right? Wow, it is. <laughs> Thought I was at an MMA match just for a second there. <laughs> I hear booyah is what's really is what's yelled there. That's right. Rousing. Yeah. Uh, and so we're gonna we we uh, we spoil movies. We talk about a a movie every single week, every single solitary week we do this thing. And uh, and so you can head over to thenextreel.com, see all the movies that we've talked about in the past. And uh, uh, we're coming up on uh, not next week, but the week after, I think, right? We're doing our film board. So uh, we'll right. get the get the gang together and we'll talk about another new release that's coming out at the end of the month. And we're very excited about it. Fits right in our series that we're doing. It is our very special episode. It is our very special episode. And if you're clever, you can probably figure out what it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so very excited about that. Head, head over to Facebook.com slash The Next Reel. You can uh, join in the conversation over there. And um, uh, I think that's it. Twitter, iTunes, 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 definitely head over to iTunes. You can subscribe to the show for free, so you don't miss a single episode of uh, of uh, film goodness uh, from yours truly and 
and Andrew, and uh, leave us some nice comments. We, sh- we sure appreciate the kind words that come in on the show, and it, it certainly uh, uh, helps other people discover. Your stars help other people discover our weekly show, so we appreciate that very much. Absolutely. All right, let's get to the meat of this thing. Let's talk Star Trek. I liked it. Meh. I'm totally disappointed in your review. <laughs> that's what I give you. That's what I give your review of this movie. <laughs> Do you know what it is? Because you succumbed to peer pressure. I did. I did. I did. Well, here's the thing. I I liked it watching out. I didn't. Or when I when I walked out of theater, if I could talk, I I liked it. I didn't love it. I enjoyed the whole ride, except I had a, a few issues with some parts that lulled for me. Um, all the, and then as I reported to you, when it when it got down to the end, I was like, gosh, I would have wish I was a little more emotionally caught up in the film. Uh, like the guy behind me who was crying. <laughs> and you probably reported, yeah, that was me. I was the guy behind you who was crying. <sighs> I was, was I was not uh I was not alone in that in that experience. I, I there were some there were some man tears. You know what it was? It was the okay, so spoilers, stop uh, turn the volume down. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, starting now. So the the sequence when they where we go full on Wrath of Khan, right? Yes. Uh, that that part it totally had me. It hooked me. But the thing is, it hooked me in Wrath of Khan. Like I knew what was coming, and right. it still hooked me. Like that that is just a sequence between those two people that uh, that I am I am obviously. Uh, I'm going to be moved by uh, seeing the the, thing. the reversal of having Kirk in the in the radiation chamber and and Spock on the outside. I thought was a a nice twist, but it was a nice twist given what I thought was a pretty pedestrian choice. Yeah. Um. And and that was my I, I think that was my only problem. I didn't have any real problem with the uh, you know the believability of putting the ship underwater of doing all those things that that everybody who is being way overly cynical about this film uh, thought I didn't have a problem with. I thought it was as you said it was a great ride. I love the setup. I love the conversation of with uh, uh, Admiral Pike uh, and uh, you know Spock and Kirk as they're getting chewed out. You know what what's the number one lesson here? Never trust a Vulcan. Like those little quips i thought it was just perfect abrams and and team dialogue it was delivered well i love the crew i wanted to be on that ship that was that was my experience uh, with the movie i didn't want to be on that ship well <laughs> it went through it went through hell <laughs> i was just I was like i don't know how many people died on that ship but oh yeah please. especially with the hole in the warp to, getting man, sucked out into warp drive, into warp drive into yeah. warp space i mean or whatever you call it yeah. when you're warping through space sucked it, it out really, in the vacuum of warp space that really really would suck this was but this was the problem and i found so i obviously was emotionally connected but two things bugged me the only two things that really bugged me uh one was that abrams and team couldn't come up with something new like this was a new twist on a very old theme and i feel like we have a brand new crew and a new version of this ship and a lot of new possibilities and they did something old with it and it it like that's the only I enjoyed given that choice if that's our only choice here I enjoyed the ride and I had a good time with it the only other thing that bugged me is they've got 72 super beings on the ship 71 super beings on the ship why did they not uh, you know take a drop of blood from one of the other frozen you know popsicle super beings instead they have this you know chase of Spock like I, I felt like that between Spock and Khan on on Earth and I felt like that was a little bit of a 
a, kind of a hole for me. Uh, that, that was the big hole that made me think, wow, that's they should have caught somebody should have caught that and made that uh, and sealed that up before they sent it to print. That's yeah, that's one of those things, you know, that, uh, you, know you got to wonder about. But it becomes one of those holes that by that point, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I forgot about those other 71 people there. But yeah, um, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's it, kinda, it's it was all it was all very convenient, but uh, it still is enjoyable. That's right. It still was enjoyable. But there's and, this article floating around that you totally uh, you, you you drank the Kool-Aid. I, I did. Well, it, it's yeah, it just it it made me go, oh, yeah. That was kind of a weird yeah. thing. That was a weird thing, too. There was a lot of things that they brought up that, that I was like, well, yeah, I can see their point. I don't really agree with it, but, you know, I can see what they're saying. And I thought it was written in a pretty funny way. So, you know, I still give them that. Yeah. So. Well, I quite enjoyed it. I've seen it twice. Uh, I know. We did the uh, IMAX and then again the 2D. And, and honestly, I enjoyed the, the 2D more. Yeah, I saw it, well, as as I told you, I saw it in 2D uh, late at night. I was one of probably about 10 people in the theater. Yeah. It was very, uh, I mean, it was running like, you know, every every 30 minutes. So I uh, I think I, uh, I probably just caught the last tail end of people trying to catch it that night. So Awesome. Yeah. That's All right, our... so overall thumbs up. Overall, we like it. Yeah, I was talking, yeah. you know, Chad, uh, our our comrade in arms uh, from the film board. Chad called me today, and he's, he we were talking about the movie, and said the exact same thing that that I'd said earlier on. That it was like this. This was a movie I when I saw the first one, two thousand nine. Uh, I loved it, and at the end of it, the only thing I said was, "I want more of that." And this movie gave me more of that, and yeah. that it answered that that it, it solved the equation for me. And I I would still I would love to see even more of that. I mean, and speaking to your point about the whole Wrath of Khan repeating the past uh, films sort of thing in the film, the thing that I do um, like about that is I like that they, I don't know, it just seemed to go along with this whole alternate reality twist that they yeah. have in the, in, the, in the films now where they're able to create a whole new version out of an old story and I thought that was kind of a fun way to go about it. And so in that's in one sense, it didn't bother me too much that they went to a, an old story and rehashed it in a new way for us. I kind of enjoyed that. I certainly hope that here moving forward that they don't uh, bring the whales in. Or, the space whales? Yeah, well, yeah. I'm, I, I'm not looking forward to space whales either. But you know what? Uh, to your point, I think one of the one of the things that I really like about these choices that they made were were uh, just how it lets us explore the um, uh, inevitability of the Spock Kirk relationship. Yeah. Right. You know I, that it, it doesn't really matter that we're on an alternate timeline. We're still going to have that level of depth between these two characters that otherwise would would be. It, it's that yin and yang, the left brain, right brain. It is, um, you know, this is these these are two half brains that make a whole. And that's that's the sort of Roddenberry experiment on this on this ship. And I, I thought that was a, a really nice way, um, you know, a really nice way to to play that out. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Enough about. And that's that. Enough about you. Uh, let's talk about your trailer because I'm fascinated by it. Uh, my fast, my, my fascinating trailer. <laughs> my brain's not completely clicking tonight. Apparently, my trailer is a very interesting-looking documentary called "The Act of Killing," directed by Joshua Oppenheimer. 
and uh, presented by Werner Herzog and Errol Morris, two fantastic documentary filmmakers in their own right. Um, it's a frightening look at a death squad leader from a country that I don't believe they named in the trailer, that basically this man who's responsible for just killing, it sounds like, millions of people in, in just mass killings. And they they talk to this guy, and the way they introduce him in the trailer, he's like, oh, he's a grandfather, he's everyone's friend, he's a happy guy, and then then all of a sudden it goes, and he's a you know mass murderer, and it takes this dark turn. And then what they do, which it frightens me because it's just it's it's really just kind of a, a gruesome thing to think about they take this guy and they have him recreate these kind of mass killings that he did uh, with like you know theatrical like film actors and everything and and they recreate it with special effects and they dress people up and they have him basically watch the and perform in these mass killings and really start thinking about what it was that he actually had been uh, responsible for. And you see this person finally having to be in a place where he's reflecting on the the murders he's done and the damage he's done. It's, I don't know, it just is a frightening look at the, the politics and media and tying them all together and the way things come together and and just the horrifying nature of in a way, what we put on film and, and what we think about what we put on film and and what it's really saying when you really think about it. And it's it's uh, it's it, I don't know. It looks like a really fascinating glimpse into that aspect of things. And I think that's why I was drawn to it, partly because this documentary that, you know, I've been working on about uh, Sheriff Joe also is really looking at politics and the media and how they tie together. So looks pretty frightening. It, it looks really frightening. It's uh it it is uh, a fascinating and just the staging of the uh you know of the killing the the restaging of the killing was just uh it's really stunning uh, what they got these guys to do and to do with a lot of pride. Yeah. Uh, in their, you know, sort of quote workmanship. Uh, right. It was um wow, fascinating. Yeah, it's horrifying how how they kind of just take to it and they perform these these you know acts yeah. of murder and get this guy to really start thinking about the act of murder. Oh, it's it, it is um yeah, it's it's a fascinating look at it. And it, you know, it's a perspective shift, you know. It's one of those things that we you know, when when you see the the sequence that that really stuck out to me was the you know, watching them on uh, you, you know, the shooting that television show, the talk show, talking about how they have come up with this, um, with a new and much more efficient way of killing communists. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that was a, uh, you know, it was a very nice um, sort of interview and, and then watching them actually go and, and sort of recreate the efficiency with which they kill communists. And she's, you know, her quote was, you know, something to the effect of, um, you know, you've, you, it, it is much more efficient, much, much less violent. And yet you still really mow them down. <laughs> it's just <laughs> awful, yeah, awful, awful yeah. Uh, stuff. And, and so. Yeah, it looks like a fascinating uh, independent documentary that will be uh, popping up over the summer. So, uh, my trailer is The Wall, and it uh, it's already out in Germany. It came out in October in Germany. It has not come here yet. So who who knows when it will hit a theater near you? But I think it's worth uh, keeping an eye out for on iTunes and and uh, Netflix. Uh, it is. 
let's see. A uh, woman inexplicably finds herself cut off from all human contact when an invisible, unyielding wall suddenly surrounds the countryside. Uh, it is a, it's kind of a psychological thriller um, uh, of this woman alone I, I, in, uh, in the woods. And the wall is uh, very familiar. Uh, to me, I and so I I offer this trailer just because of the kind of interesting parallel to the um, to Stephen King's Under the Dome, and the upcoming um, miniseries or at least uh, TV series that's that's coming of of Under the Dome that he's producing. Um, it, it's a very similar thing. Woman is walking along and suddenly this this invisible shield comes down and she walks into it and now she's cut off from everything and you know she can drive cars into this thing she can do it's like a a giant you know pie plate has been put on top of her little part of the country and so it's her and her dog Lynx uh trying to figure out how to stay sane and and uh, get out directed yeah. by Julian Posler uh based on the book uh by Marlon Hosshofer and uh written uh, the adaptation was written by by Posler so. Yeah, it looks fascinating. I'm actually right in the middle of Under the Dome right now. So yeah. as soon as I started watching this trailer, I was I was quite excited because it really taps into that whole feel of this like invisible force field that's yeah. keeping you. Uh, I mean, this one's definitely more of an isolationist sort of uh, of uh, a dome that she's stuck behind rather than the uh, Stephen King novel. But it's definitely has that same sort of vibe, like, you know, the, the psychology of, of how you handle yourself and what you do now that you're stuck in this place where you can't actually communicate or, or contact people on the other side. Right, right. And, you know, I, I love the, um, um, uh, what was the, uh, the, the Will Smith uh, adaptation of the vampire one? Uh, I am legend. I am legend. You know, it's that it's that whole idea of you know, let's just take this central character and make them alone. You know, and yeah. give them a dog. And uh, I'm I'm a big fan of of these isolationist films like this. You know, the um, Lost at Sea, stuck in a city full of vampires and no one else, stuck under a giant pie plate. Pie plate. You know, I'm I am in favor of these movies. <laughs> uh, so big fan. Big big fan that, of that, the alone we'll movies. Have to... We'll have to create a, a new uh, a list on our on our page on thenextreel.com and uh, of all totally of our, our right. favorite favorite isolationist films. There you go. <laughs> that is so good. Favorite. I'm making a note. There you go. Oh, that's good. You'll you'll put that up once you finish your your top uh, cornfield movies or that feature beautiful cornfields. Oh right! Did you catch all the Barbie Fairy movies? Or I'm sure there are some more of those you need to see. Sure. <laughs> uh, <Jerk>. You. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's talk about. Uh, let's start. Let's let's kick off this magic series, shall we? Let's kick it. Kick it. So we're we're doing the Prestige based on the uh, 2006 uh, magic film. One of the 2006 magic films, this one's based on the book by Christopher Priest, the 1995 novel, which you can find in the show notes, a link to that in the show notes uh, at thenextreel.com. Yep, and it's also on our list of lists. Yes. On our page, yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, and so uh, this was the the, the prestige uh, this particular adaptation uh, stars uh, Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale uh, in the um, uh uh, roles of the main magicians. Uh, uh, Michael Caine is the uh, grizzled and wise uh, elder magician father figure, and Scarlett Johansson is the dame. Uh, what do we think of this movie? Where do you stand? Now that you've watched it again, where do you stand? 
I I actually watched this not too long ago, uh, probably you know a month or two ago, and just watched it again for the show. I really can't get enough of this film. I think it's just so well done and such a fascinating story of two magicians told in a way where it's almost designed as if the film itself is a magic trick. Everything about it, I just find so well crafted that I just have a blast watching it every time I turn it on. I do too. And I, I and it's, it's funny as I was researching for the film, I, I'm trying to figure out, because uh, there there were people who wildly did not share my opinion. Idiots. But, it, seriously, <laughs> what did they not get? Uh, and and so I'm I'm trying to figure out what is the argument against this film, and I think I I I think I I figured it out right. The way the film opens, we have uh, Michael Chain Michael Chains Michael Changs. <laughs> that's his that's his biker gangsta name. <laughs> Michael Caine is giving us a little bit of a voiceover, right? And he's he's talking about the the setup of of every magic trick, right? That that you right. have the pledge where the there's a seemingly real situ- situation set up, the turn in which the reality is of of that real situation is challenged, and then the prestige, where all is is set right again, and you have to adjust to this kind of a new reality of what you've what you've just seen, right? Yep. And uh, and the film in you know, as you already said, is very much set up that way, right? And while we're stuck in this microcosm watching these magic tricks play out on stage through the various shows and the the behind the scene, uh, you know, the backstage and the understage, you know, we are seeing these these tricks play out on a little small scale. The film itself is a is a uh, is structured in a like a trick itself, you know, where we have the the seemingly real situation of who these guys are set up and the turn uh, in the second act and the third act where, where all is set right uh, again. And we're in we are it is revealed to us what the actual tricks uh, were. Right. And it's a it's a movie of one upsmanship. Right. We, we keep being tricked as an audience about who is who's who and who's ahead of the of the other and 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 it's all fascinating and it seems to me that the people who are upset by the way this film ends are the people who uh who see it as a failure of expectations that the final uh resolution is far less literal than they needed it to be does that make sense i think so that it because all the other tricks demonstrate this, you know, the pledge and the turn in a very literal and pragmatic and and practical magic setup. Now turning it on its head with the, uh, with the the um, uh, mystical uh, resolution of the actual teleportation of uh, or or duplication of a of a person. Uh, ends up being a disappointment because it it falls out of the expectation that the film is set up, the tone and tenor of the film. Right, 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 yeah. I totally disagree with that, but I feel like I have to get that out. Well, I think you're right. And also, uh, I think, I don't know. I mean, it's a a story about magicians and magic. And to me, I mean... the the great thing about magic is that the whole thing is designed to be illusion. It's designed to be something that... Um, you know, fools the audience. I mean, I don't think I've ever uh, seen a story about a magician who really performs magic. I mean, because then all of a sudden we're in the realm of fantasy and then we're talking Gandalf 
you know, right. conjuring things with his his uh, wand or his giant stick that he carries. I don't know what he his, his staff, giant stick. <laughs> he probably has a name for it. Oh, There's a name for it's everything. A staff. It's a staff. It's a but... staff. Oh. <laughs> Andy, oh. uh, let let the uh, hate mail come pouring in. <laughs> you know his giant stick, his giant <laughs> stick of magic. <laughs> oh, oh man! Goodness. All right, please, please recover. You were saying about Gandalf's giant stick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what I was saying. Oh, but real magic. The great thing about stories of magicians is it's all about illusion and it's about the nature of tricking an audience the way that these magicians their whole goal is to trick an audience and make you believe something that is not real and that's what i love about these magician stories is because it's all illusion and then at the end you realize it was all just an illusion and the nature of this thing that you see at the end of this one dealing with Nikola Tesla and this crazy contraption that he creates. I, I, you know, there's this element of, of funky science that's kind of thrown into it, not magic, that also kind of throws an interesting twist into the illusion of what we're dealing with at the end of the film. And I find it fascinating. And I have no problem with that strange scientific element thrown into this. I think it's an interesting element that's, that's brought up. I don't have any problem with that. There's I, there's a critic who said, um, I love a good science fiction story. Just tell me in advance in relation to this film. And I'm like, you know, it, that, that's that's not the point of this film. Yes, we use Tesla as a character in this film, and he creates this interesting scientific device that does actually create duplicates of a person. But... Uh, and this magician uses that in his trick to create this amazing illusion quote unquote, that he is teleporting himself all the way across the room. But the idea of how this magician uses that and the, the psychological uh, drama that goes along with what that means, I think is what makes this film an amazing film. And that's what maybe they're not getting that. Maybe they think that that whole thing is a cheat. But I think that is a fascinating element to this story. Yeah, you know what? I, I love the turn on on that point, that uh, it, it turns out that this is not a trick, that this is, you know, in the universe of the film, this is science, and yet it's broken science that right. allows us to, to see, uh, in fact, the most human frailty uh, that is going on between these two men, right? That that this is they are. It illustrates just how broken Jackman's character has, of of Robert Angier has become. Right. That that he is not only is he has he been willing to travel all over the world to try to to discern the secret to divine the secret of Christian Bale's uh, transported man trick, but that he is suddenly now at such a an emotional fervor. That he that it is acceptable to him to kill himself a hundred times, right? To drown himself a hundred times. That ends up being a, um, you know, uh, I I think that that ends up being the the heart and soul of the film. But you have to get past the fact that that it's it takes a bit of a science fiction turn uh, to get there. And and um, 
for me that you know I I think Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale just nail the relationships uh, the relationship they have in these uh, relationships uh, that they have with <laughs> right. each other's uh, you know through the course of the film I think it's absolutely wonderful uh, and the final scene uh, you know as in the in the warehouse um, when they come to terms with one another is um, uh, it's pretty special. Well, it's it's devastating, and it's interesting. You realize how, I mean, because Jackman's character Angier is the one who realizes the lengths that it takes to become a great magician. When he catches on to what this uh, Chinese magician is doing and getting away with, and and what he's done in order to create essentially kind of this amazing act of this uh, this appearing this uh, ma- magically appearing fishbowl that's full uh, this giant globe of a fishbowl that's full of water with a fish in it that magically appears when he figures out what this chinese man has has done to himself by basically creating this false life for himself in order to make this trick work that is the moment when he starts descending into this level that he's finally at at the end. And you see that, you know, you realize as the film goes on that Bourdain, uh, Christian Bale's character, um, along with this twin brother of his, they've been living that their whole life, essentially. The two of them playing one man, or maybe not their whole life, but once they kind of went into this whole magic act, which we never see. But from that point on where they start living as one man they essentially have started doing the exact same thing and it's a frightening thing to realize that you have to essentially give up who you are and become this fake version of yourself in order to actually pull off something that's really magical and it 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 doesn't work for angier until he gets this scientific device where he finally pushes himself to a place where he is able to do that and you're right it's absolutely horrific that he descends to this place where he's willing to kill himself a hundred times in order to to pull off the most amazing amazing magic trick and it's horrifying it truly is well it is and and uh you know i think that's a it's a great point that you uh that you bring up that uh, that Christian Bale's characters, the the twins, um, you know, had already made that commitment to one another. You know, essentially when we meet them, right? I, I mean, at, I, yeah. when they're when they're already when they're shilling for for the fantastic Ricky Jay as the burnt out magician, playing ironically Milton, the the burnt out uh, magician, um, they already are are living this lifestyle, right? I mean, do we have any reason to believe otherwise that they? No, right from the start, that's how they're living. Right. And so uh, when Angier discovers this, right, there, there's an interesting turn in his character. As you say, he discovers it, he kind of freaks out when he realizes the level of commitment that is required there. And yeah. the rest of the film, interestingly, and this is what I like so much about Hugh Jackman, the way he plays it, it's not necessarily about Hugh Jackman coming to terms with the living that kind of commitment, right? Because the, right. the example that we get in the Chinese magician is this level of peace that he, he is, he's made a commitment to this character and he's playing it. Uh, even Christian Bale's character, he, 
sort of shows this level of kind of awe when he sees the the Chinese magician. He says, you know, that is real commitment. That's a guy who's perfected, subtextually right. speaking here, what I'm doing already. You know, that's, I get that. And Hugh Jackman spends the rest of the movie looking feverishly for a shortcut, right? Yeah. Not actually working toward making that kind of emotional commitment, but looking for a technological solution to a, to a, uh, really a, a challenge of, of an internal challenge that he just was not able to make until until the end. Yeah, and it's 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 something that I think he he really is pushed to that breaking point where he has to find that shortcut because of the death of his wife. Right. I mean that's that's really what pushes him across the line. Well, it is. Okay, so his wife dies. This uh, this is the the root of their animosity toward one another. Yeah. Uh, you know, they are shills for Milton. They come up as as fake audience members, and they are asked to tie uh, the uh, the lovely uh, Julia, who is actually uh, Robert Angier's wife. Uh, Played wonderfully wife. by Piper Perabo. Piper Perabo, absolutely. And they're to tie her hands and ankles as she's dropped into the Chinese uh, water tank. And uh, we've already been set up that she's, uh, you know, that they, that, that, uh, uh, Alfred has, uh, Borden, has uh, a new knot he would like to try. She's in for it. She says, I can slip it. We can practice. And then live on stage, even though everybody else was against it, he ties a, you know, what I, I think we are led to believe is the the new knot, and she can't get out of it. Yeah. Even though over the course of the next, you know, 20, 30 minutes at the funeral, et cetera, we, you know, he keeps saying, I, I can't remember what knot I tied. But, uh but there's clearly well, a change in knots in the sense. Well, and I think he's saying that because uh, to me it seems like every time, or to me I interpret it that every time that conversation ends up happening between Hugh Jackman and or uh, Angier and Bourdain, is that he's talking to the one who wasn't on stage. Oh, you that, know, I didn't even catch that. That's, that's right. Well, that's that's my yeah. interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why that particular version of uh, or Christian Bale's character doesn't he can't remember which knot he tied because he wasn't the one who was on stage. Yep. Nope. That's a really good catch. I didn't I didn't make that connection at all. That makes that makes much more sense. And that really is the that's the the giveaway at the end that we we see that that in fact Fallon Bernard Fallon and uh, uh, Alfred Bourdain are the twins and they took turns playing one another. Yeah, uh, which adds to some of the relationship complication. Which is which is horrifying when you re- when the poor wife, mm-hmm. uh, uh, beautifully played by Re- Rebecca Hall, who I just think is is fantastic, and mm-hmm. and we we may be talking about her sometime in our near future, in uh, something. But but yeah, she's she's wonderful in this, and it's heartbreaking as as the wife dealing with this essentially Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type of a husband from her perspective, this man who's, who seems to have these personality switches. And I, I, I never quite know if does, is the reason that she ends up killing herself because she finally catches on and she realizes that it's been these twins all along, or does she kill herself because she is so tormented with this this struggle of dealing with this this person who she interprets as being this split personality that she can't handle it anymore. You know, I've always kind of looked at it as both, right? Yeah. That that it's the fatigue of having to deal with this person who she thought had a split personality and then she discovers in fact again uh in in a 
kind of an homage to the design of the the structural design of the film uh the prestige is her killing herself right it's her yeah. making sense of this world that she suddenly discovers was true all along yeah it's just horrifying though i mean it's it's a it's a tragic thing that happens because of this lifestyle that these two men have chosen to live these yeah. two versions of of christian bale or the two men that he's portraying in this film right it's tragic i'm i'm trying to i, I was trying to put together the the um uh, the the character arc for each character and you you already um, brought up uh you know his wife uh and i think she fits the the model of the um you know of the prestige um you know the pledge the turn and and the prestige and obviously our two main characters fit into that model and and michael kane's character fits into that model when he discovers the true nature of the universe at the very very end and discovers the nature of of uh you know hugh jackman's character um and and what he's been doing all along sort of his universe is set um you know sideways um i I think it's when you when i look at it that way it makes the movie uh so much more interesting to watch that every one of these characters has been so meticulously crafted by you know Jonathan and Christopher Nolan that uh we and and obviously um uh Christopher um uh Christopher Priest that right. that they are like these these pieces in this fantastic puzzle that that it, it, you know when we see the the final scene uh you know with uh, as Hugh Jackman sort of re- reveals himself as the as the uh, um, you know the Lord, uh, we it, it all fits together. Yeah, in in a frightening way. And what I find fascinating about that is it's really hard watching this film to get a handle on who the protagonist is. Yeah, and it's not. I mean, I think it just it it shifts a little bit throughout the film because. I don't think you really feel like it's Bourdain, uh, Christian Bale's character, until you're nearing the end as you're really kind of watching Hugh Jackman's character, Angier's, descending into madness. and Or not madness, but this it's almost like this this frightening position of power that he has finally achieved because he's he's gotten to this low level where he is willing to go to this you know place where he you know kills himself night after night to uh, appease his audience it's it's really a frightening descent watching Hugh Jackman take and then at the end when you see that he's still alive and you you just feel so spiteful toward him and everything that he's done and you see that Christian Bale you one of them dies at the uh, at the noose and the other one is the one who's finally able to get the daughter back and and create this life it's like okay so maybe he was our protagonist all along but it's it's hard to watch it that way the whole time it's it's such an interesting film it's hard to get a pinpoint on who we're rooting for but i find that in itself a part of the magic of the film and and watching these characters change and watching our um, our position as as who we're rooting for kind of changes. The film goes along. It's all part of the magic trick that the film is playing on us. I think absolutely. It feels like there's a new little tiny betrayal every five minutes, right? I mean, every right. time. Uh, so it, when um, uh, uh, oh God, the um, the names make me crazy. So when uh, Borden uh, meets his 
future wife. Suddenly we are we are brought into a new sort of emotional connection with him, and he's the guy we're we're sort of connected to. And then uh, and then uh, Angiers uh, meets his new uh, you know his new babe uh, Scarlett Johansson, and th- they go through their little uh, love tryst. And so their sort of our allegiance kind of follows their romances, and then is tested every time they pull a spy versus spy on one another. You know when when uh, Borden goes and shoots off, or Angier shoots off the fingers of of uh, Borden. Um, you know we're it's it's whoever our our sort of um, sympathy sentiment is tilted toward that that we're now paying more attention to as the protagonist. But it changes every five minutes in this film, and so I think that's the game. You know that's the that that's one of the things that makes it I think so compelling. Absolutely. Yeah, it's such a, a, a twisty, turny thing in and of itself. It's just watching the characters change. I, I just find such a fascinating uh, and enjoyable uh twist so, so talk about uh, a little bit this is not necessarily a this is not a linear um, story it's uh, told uh, a lot of the the narrative is told through um, them reading these journals uh, that they've stolen from one another uh, right right and but the the structure the way the movie was cut particularly in the beginning the sort of the pacing of, of uh, the way the movie was cut the way we earn flashbacks in this film I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about how it was structured it's it's fascinating. I think that uh, Jonathan Nolan and uh, Christopher Nolan uh, adapted this together based on the Christopher Priest novel, as you said. Christopher Priest novel itself was uh, an ep- epistolary, is that how you say it? Epistolary? Epistolary? Yeah. Uh, ep- epistolary novel written as if it's just a whole bunch of, of, of journals and, and letters and things like that. And he created this uh this fascinating jump back and forth the novel has a lot of differences um there's bits of it that happen actually in present day with i I believe it's descendants i can't quite remember who are reading these stories based on the magicians from a hundred years before and so you get this all this jumping back and forth between them reading it and the journals and all this sort of stuff and initially when Jonathan Nolan, uh, Christopher Nolan, I think he was busy working on Batman Begins when he when they first started tapping into this, or maybe it was, um, oh, what was the film he did right before that, Insomnia. Jonathan adapted it. He kind of cut out the entire structure with the journals, and he left that to the side. Christopher Nolan, when he came back in, realized how important it was to the novel and really felt that that was going to be key here. He took that and put it back into the script and they ended up going with it, which works really well. And it created this ability for them to really jump around the story using this nonlinear model where you'd get little bits of one thing and then that would jump backward as you started essentially having a flashback to something else and you'd get some of that story. You'd jump forward again and you'd follow that person a little more. You get to a point where somebody's reading a journal and you're flashing back to someone else reading a journal and all these fascinating jumps back and forward in time. And it, it in a way, it has this kind of, I guess now in modern time, we are always saying it feels very Tarantino-esque as you know, you're jumping around in your uh, linear space of your story. And it works really well in the context of this particular story because of the nature of the magic trick and because of when you want to basically provide each of the reveals to your audience and when you want them to all of a sudden catch on to something. If you told it in a linear fashion, it probably wouldn't have as much of that 
that magic and it wouldn't have it wouldn't capture you quite as much by surprise as things came along what's great about the structure of of this story is that it does really help tie in the nature of the the pledge the turn and the prestige these elements of the magic trick and then the other fascinating thing about the uh, the nature of the script is and I just totally blanked. I just totally lost it. <laughs> That's right, man. You were on a roll. I know. I'm gonna, oh. I'm gonna look for it. Uh, I what is the uh, so you were you were gonna talk about the script? I was gonna go into uh, Lee Smith and uh, editing this film and the uh, cinematography. Uh, we'll Wally talk Fister. about that. Well, no, you know, I think I was just uh, sort of looking at the the parallels between uh, what. Uh, the way the script is structured and the transformation to um, or the choices that you make between uh, script and and the editing room right um, as as he's trying to figure out because some of these flashbacks are wicked short right uh, you know these little and the use of of Michael Caine's voice and uh, and of uh, um, Christian Bale's voice you know that that it feels like they're sitting right behind your ears. They say, you know, are you watching closely? Right. Uh, you know, those, the choices that they, that they ended up making to, to actually get the point across, uh, to, to drive home some image or something that you need to keep in the back of your mind in order to earn the, the prestige of the film, you know, 70 minutes later, 80 minutes later, is, it, it, it ends up being, I, I think, very powerful. Lisa Smith I, I, is... Go ahead. And I, hold on. I remembered what I was going to say. So let me get it out before I forget. Okay. It again. Yeah. Do it quick. The other fascinating thing about the narrative uh, structure is that because we're reading these journals, and because of the the way that you hit these points as they're reading the journals, where all of a sudden you realize that they're writing the the journal that each character is reading, which essentially they s get to a point where they're stealing each other's journals and reading them. And you get to this point at the end of them where you realize the person who's writing it and narrating that particular journal actually knows that this other person is stealing it and reading it. You all of a sudden create this fascinating situation of this unreliable narrator, yeah. this person who is purposefully telling you a story that may or may not be the real story. And what I think that lends to is the nature of the magician you know, giving us this pledge, the turn and the prestige. Now, all of a sudden, we have these magicians who aren't necessarily telling us the story because that's the story we need to be or we want to be told, but it's the story they need to be telling us in order to make the magic trick work. That, I think, was a really fascinating way that they were able to tap into the use of the nonlinear narrative structure in order to create this magic trick of a film. Oh, I'm so glad you, you came back to that point. That is a really good point. They, they come clean with each other pretty close to proximity to one another, right, uh, in the film. You know, when they, we get it's, it's uh, you know, as we hear... The, this unreliable narrator in their voice saying, you know, by the way, it's me and I know you're reading and yeah. I love you. And uh, <laughs> this is so fun. Let's do more of this. Right. right. Uh, but it, it makes you go back and question um, certain important elements of the story. Not that you necessarily need to to figure out the end. But, for example, uh, Scarlett Johansson, I mean, her entire role is up for question at this point because you can't trust what either of these men have written to one another uh, because they've betrayed one another. Their words become about these other important characters end up becoming um, fallible. Yeah. That's I think it's, it is fascinating. Um, okay. What else do you want to talk about? Well, you had mentioned Wally Pfister 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Wally Pfister and Lee Smith, right? Uh, we were talking yeah. about these guys. These guys have been kind of around for um, for a while with uh, uh, Nolan, with our man Nolan. Yeah, they've they've been around. I um, I let's see now. I moved my my list around. You got me. Well, Wally, Wally Pfister. A fascinating thing about this film, yeah. which what I find funny about this film is that the whole not the whole thing, but a, a good vast chunk of it was shot in and around L.A. Not anywhere in England. Right. <laughs> they uh, they really wanted to create this real messy style of filmmaking. And because they wanted to move faster, they wanted to um, just really kind of create something a little fresher. It was mostly handheld. They used this kind of messy style that I was saying. Wally Pfister really wanted to be able to shoot uh, 360 for some of the scenes where essentially they would rely on some of the natural light. They would kind of rely on what was there so that he could essentially spin the camera in, as they were filming 360, which they actually do a few times where you're, right. they end up moving around characters and you see everything around them and to create this real energetic style to the film that I think lended a great vibe to the whole film overall. Yeah, it was that sense of immersion, I think, which you that that you're getting Absolutely. to. You know, I mean, as soon as they make that commitment to, you know, that the production is going to have to be able to accommodate, um, you know, that level of immersion. It's the same sort of thing you get in, you know, later as they start working on on, uh, you know, Inception, for example. I think that's another one that that um, that gives you that same sense of of place, right? Place and time, uh, which is very powerful. Absolutely. Uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just, and you, you had brought up Lee Smith as the other person. I, I think somebody who has to tap into the nature of this non-linear style. The editor always has to really be, <laughs> really has to be uh, on the ball in order to make that make sense. And so I, I think kudos to Lee Smith being able to really tap into the story that Christopher Nolan was telling and find the right way to cut it together in order to make it make perfect sense, especially when you watch it and then you go back and you watch it again and you can catch the things that are, are, are uh, that you missed the first time, you know, very much that whole sixth sense sort of thing where you want to go back and watch it to catch all the little hints that you don't catch the first time. And being able to make sure that those are there, I think Lee Smith really uh, was on the ball with this and, and made a and really edited this film well. I, I think so too, and you know, one it's an interesting. Uh, I watched a little bit of uh, the Truman Show. Um, you know, when I realized it was that when was the last time we talked about Lee Smith? Um, haven't we talked about him before in Wally Fister? We talked about him. Uh, I can't remember if we brought him up with Dark Knight Rises when we did that. Program. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, that, that might have been it. That yeah. might have been it. Well, anyway, you know, he's uh, they this they've been around a long time, and they, he did the Truman Show and Fearless, two of my uh, top films um I, I like very much and and the the truman show has some of these same sort of interesting elements and it's it's that uh it, with a, a different uh foil right in the yeah. truman show the editing all serves to play a massive trick on uh truman and right. and it works so well um in this film it's it's like a, a master class in playing a trick on on a, a major character uh, because he's playing tricks on all of them, uh, and uh, I, I just found myself riveted thinking about what he's going through to to have to come to that same, like you say, that same level of sort of um, uh, matching signals with uh, um, 
you know, with a director to try and figure out what is going on in this movie as he pieces together frame by frame. It's a fascinating job yeah, uh, that he yeah. did on this film. I, I completely agree. Yeah, great work by him. I mean, really great by work, work by uh, everybody who was on the production of this film. They made this film. It looks gorgeous. It really looks the part of a period British film taking place in the late 1800s that was shot in L.A. I think they did a, a fantastic job mm-hmm. all the way through. And in Colorado Springs. And something else that we haven't talked about at all yet was the amazing David Bowie playing uh, Nikola Tesla who he's so great i think is just riveting in the role of tesla and uh, as small as the part is in this film i think it's a very powerful uh role to play in the film not just because of the nature of the science that he creates that helps uh angiers do these magic tricks but also i think it's incredibly important because of the the nature of rivalry in the film and how there's this this constant battle between Tesla and Edison about uh, these new scientific inventions that they're coming up with and you know they bring it up in the film how Edison and his men are are you know destroying Tesla's stuff and they're you know these bullies essentially in Tesla and, and I mean really if you look at history I I think that's how a lot of people kind of see it now that Edison and his men probably you know did kind of you know, steal stuff from Tesla and destroy Tesla's credibility. And even though Tesla had invented a lot of great stuff, we ended up losing a lot of that because Tesla was really kind of dismissed early on, which is sad. But the nature of rivalry between those two men and what it does to them really plays out between the rivalries between Angiers and uh, um, Borden and, and their relationship. And rivalries of two people who are trying to achieve this high level of success it's just it's really fascinating and i loved that they brought tesla in as a character in the film because it really emphasized that and it played played with that whole thing so much it is a uh, it's one of those sort of uh, you know show don't tell moments right i mean they absolutely did not need to have tesla as a, i mean it's a dis, it, it it could be argued that going to colorado is a distraction from the the primary story but uh you know it ends up working so well to to give angiers this journey um this this time away to go and and you know see if he can come to make sense of of you know his own struggles uh, and then to be sitting at a table out front of the uh, of, of the house with uh, with Tesla and says, you know, go home. Don't you let this go. Forget about this. Yeah. No good will come of this. And he says, you know, I've, I, I, you know, I'm not going to do that. He says, well, that's good because I've already started building it. We'll right. see, you, see you in a bit. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, I love, I absolutely love that this that was his Yoda journey, and it. <laughs> You know, <laughs> right? That that David Bowie was Hugh Jackman's Yoda, right? Um, <laughs> it, it, that ends up being, I think, a, a really powerful uh, m- mini relationship. And I, gosh, he's really memorable. Memorable, understated performance uh, from him. From Bowie. absolutely, absolutely, it's great seeing David Bowie on screen. It's been yeah. a long time yeah. since he had been on screen. I can't remember the last time he was uh, he was in. A film, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there was something else, but it, it seems like it's been a while. The uh, the the uh, location uh, for the the Colorado Springs location was not in Colorado Springs at all. Nope. Uh, it was Osgood Castle, 
in Redstone, Colorado, not uh, actually uh, by rights terribly near Colorado Springs. Not really. <laughs> uh, as, you, as you cross the Rocky Mountains to get there. Uh, and, but it was a beautiful location. It is an absolutely beautiful location. We, we should, it's up we near should Aspen, I think. Yeah, we should. Yeah, it's, it's right near Aspen. We should disclose that uh, Andy and I both grew up in Colorado. Absolutely. And, uh, and I actually grew up in Colorado Springs. And so you know. I know. I'm, <laughs> I know of the field of, of spontaneously lighting light bulbs. That's right. You grew up at night, every night. <laughs> Everything. The city Why goes. Why is it the, so bright, Mike? I grew up in a in a town where at ten o'clock all the lights went out, except for this side of a mountain. <laughs> it was very strange. Very strange youth. I can only imagine. Yeah. I can only imagine. There is sadly, as to my knowledge, there is when I was a kid. You know, there was a roving. Uh, Tesla museum that would come to school, you know, and we could we could see they would have little Tesla coils that we could play with. And here, kid, put your tongue on this. Nothing like the ones in the movie. No, <laughs> no, nothing quite so ex- extravagant. But to my knowledge, there is not a Tesla like a Tesla museum. He was, th- I mean, that part of the story was right. He was there. He, uh, but uh, but as far as I know, to this day, there is no there is no Tesla fixed Tesla place to go see all this good stuff. Damn that Edison. Makes He's still sense. at He's it. Still at it. All right. Uh, let's see. Where to from here? Uh, well, Andy Circus also appears oh, in the movie. How and crazy always, is that? It's always a pleasure actually seeing Andy Circus <laughs> performing in something because you so rarely get to see him perform that is so true he's and yet he's such an affable guy you know i mean i i like when he comes on screen i love andy circus he's he's great when he's acting he's yeah. just such a he's such a quirky guy and he he fits well in these sorts of films like this king kong when he's the human yeah uh, things like that it's just it's fun to watch andy circus <laughs> when he's even topsy-turvy right yeah. right yeah. He uh, yeah, he's great yeah. Andy Serkis is great. Um, let, let's see here. We you, did, you said Ricky Jay already. I did talk about Ricky Jay. who's a very small talk, part. Talk about a perfect person to bring into a movie about magicians, though. A movie Even about magicians he... and to make him out as the guy who's like the daughtered and, and who's yeah, right. know, <laughs> who needs to be replaced. Uh, 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 Ricky Jay is perfect. Uh, Michael Caine is... Uh, you got to uh, say it right. Michael Chang. No, my cocaine. My cocaine. Have, my cocaine. Have you? What was? What was that? Where they were talking about that? It was at. Uh, what was what that? are you talking? I feel like I'm missing a joke. It is a joke. It's what a fantastic. It? Oh gosh, I'm forgetting. This is a bit. You've lost me on your bit. <sighs> I could have been. I could have been your prestige. Yeah. Um. It'll come to me. It'll come to me. Wow. Wow. I know. I know. All right. Uh, Michael Caine, par excellence. Scarlett Johansson, what do you think of Scarlett? I, I always enjoy Scarlett. Uh, maybe it's because I, I, she's just gorgeous to look at. But she's, uh, you know, she doesn't bother me in this. She, <laughs> no, and, and I mean that. Wait a that, minute. In, Wait no, a minute. I, no, I, I enjoy that. Scarlett, and she doesn't bother me in this. I, how do I, you that. do that? How do you, how do you parse that? I mean that? that in the sense that she is, is playing British. And I, she doesn't bother me. Like I actually, I, I buy her as a Brit. Her accent never feels like it's stumbling or anything. I feel like she does a a good job of playing a Brit, and I, I buy into it. So that 
with that, I really enjoy her in this film. I think she plays that role of the, you know, the stage help who needs to look pretty on stage, but at the same time is also helping them pull the trick off the way that she's passed between the two guys, all of that stuff. I think she, I think she does a great job with it. I, I have no problem with her in this film. Was she better or worse than her performance of Molly Pruitt in Home Alone 3? <laughs> if I had seen Home Alone 3, I could tell you. <laughs> we, we just watched that because it's the only Home Alone on Netflix streaming. <laughs> oh, my God. That's yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah, it, was, it was such context shock. Yeah. I didn't know that, that, was, that she was. I didn't watch that because I was looking for a Johansson film, and that's the one that came out. That is too funny. Uh, I, you know, I think I was a little bit bothered by the by playing British. I, you know, I, I didn't. I, the accent was funny to me, but I, I think that's more uh, again a context issue. That, um, you know, she's she's uh, she's a pretty big star at this point. You kind of know her for who she is and what her type is, and and um, uh, I, I think it was just kind of tough to see her in this role. But you, you know. Uh, Nolan says that this was this was a part he always imagined her uh, as the actress to play this part. Right, right. Yeah. Is what it is. Uh, the film I was talking about yeah. is The Trip with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon in this kind of uh, this <laughs> mockumentary sort of film that is uh, uh, about the two of them traveling through uh, through England and just talking. And, and I think they actually made a TV series out of it too. And essentially like they're Steve Coogan is playing himself as this, this kind of this pompous actor who beds women, every hotel they stay at and everything. And Rob Brighton, whose buddy is, is his buddy who's going along. And they have this whole bit where the two of them <laughs> are, are, are doing Michael Caine impressions <laughs> and it's just, it's so funny. It's if you haven't seen the trip, I definitely recommend watching it because it's just great watching these two guys uh, go through this whole thing and watching Steve Coogan play this version of himself is absolutely hysterical. So, <laughs> okay. Yes. That's, <laughs> I made a, I made a note. There you go. But that's the whole, my cocaine thing. My cocaine. Yeah. That's, uh, that's going to be funny later. I can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay, what else we uh, what else we got? Uh, Andy Circus, uh, Samantha Maurin, Mahurin. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, she's the little, <laughs> she's the the girl, the little girl. Oh yeah, right. Cute. She's she's the daughter. She's yeah. the daughter. You know what I find interesting? This is a film. Uh, let me jump to the numbers. Do it. Let's do this. That. Is, yeah, this is a film. It came out in 2006, as we said, October. Um, it The production budget on it was $40 million. It, it got generally favorable uh, uh, critical reviews when it came out. You know, it's in the... It's in the 70s, I think, if you look at the, the different review sites and stuff like that. $40 million to make with a production, uh, a P&A budget of $27 million. So total budget, about $67 million. Domestically, it only made about $53 million. So it didn't make its money back domestically. Internationally, it made about 56. So all told, it definitely made its money back. But it wasn't a huge film. It definitely wasn't Batman Begins. It wasn't some of these other big films that Christopher Nolan does, Insom uh, 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 Inception, things like that. Um, it made its money back, but it wasn't a huge, huge hit. 
but um uh and i lost my point again I, you're point. having a kind of a night of it i am i am where, where does it uh where does it end, uh, stand in our in our cost per minute breakdown if you look at the cost per minute, it's it's a longer movie, 130 minutes. So per minute, it costs about five hundred fifteen thousand dollars to make, and <laughs> it profited about uh, once you add in all the international, about three hundred twenty-eight thousand dollars per finished minute. So you know, it did a handsome job. It <laughs> made its money. And I remembered what I was going to say. The reason that I, I lost it is because I changed my link on my page from from uh, where I was to uh, Samantha Mihorin because you got me, you threw me, <laughs> you threw me. The thing that I find interesting is that Hugh Jackman, who is, is uh, has been in many big films, this is the film, if you look on his IMDb page, this is the film that, or if you even just search for him on IMDb, this is the first film that is connected to his name, as in the one that, is I, I don't know has the most hits I don't know how that ends up happening on IMDb but this is the film that for him is recognized as the film he's most known for more than X Men which really surprised me wow so yeah well that is interesting more than because so. uh, X Men but it, it was before Prestige. He hadn't done a whole lot other than these big. I, I shouldn't say that. he yeah, had. That's done a, because he'd done a lot. He'd done Van Helsing. He did uh, yeah. X two. Uh, but what I was gonna say, he hadn't done a lot where he really was expanding his acting outside of like these big budget types of genres, at least internationally. I mean, maybe he had been down in Australia with some of his uh, the stuff, the TV and film he had been doing down there before X Men came along in two thousand. But once he hit X-Men, it was all these big kind of uh, yeah. big films. Uh, Kate and Leopold may be a little different, but still it's hitting kind of that romantic sort of thing. This was a first, the first time he was really kind of stepping out to be kind of a, a more of a, a heavy dramatic film that wasn't necessarily a big character. He had a few of those in 2006 between this, uh, the, the fountain. fountain. Yeah, the fountain yeah. scoop. Uh, so he really kind of changed 2006 up was a big year. It was, it was a big year for him. And I think it was the first year that really led to people discovering the things that Hugh Jackman could do that led him to the greatest film he's ever been in, which of course is real steel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Yes. And you never saw movie 43, but let me tell you, Hugh Jackman has a very interesting. <laughs> it's on. It's actually on my. Uh, I've got it in my. I don't know if it's actually. Has it been? Is it on DVD yet? Oh, I'm, I'm sure oh, it is. Right. Sure. It's. I had it. It's been in my Netflix queue for so long that it was not available. You know, it had not been released, so it was at the bottom. I haven't seen where it is now. So I have to see. But yeah. you know, one of my favorites was Swordfish. Uh, I I had a ball with them. That opening sequence, when the bomb goes off and all the ball bearings come out, that was like the the the. Um, this was big in the the bullet cam days, you know, the bullet time right. yep. shot. That was epic. I don't remember Swordfish. Oh, Halle Berry. That's all I remember about it is Halle Berry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, movie forty three uh, has 43. not been released yet. It has not been. So released it's it's yet. still in my uh, yeah, still waiting. List. All right. Um, uh, okay, so there were the numbers. How, what, should we? Are you ready to rank? Do you have other things? I'm, uh, no, let's I, rank I it. think I ran through them all. Yep, let's, let's hit it. it. 
Are you ready? We're moving uh, over to um, the uh, Flickchart, uh, which you can find us at uh, flickchart.com slash the next reel. Or you can just go to the nextreel.com and click on our little top 100 line, which we're getting closer to. Uh, slowly, week by week. All right, the Prestige or Cloud Atlas? Well, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going, going with Prestige. I was going to say, I would go with the Prestige. Yep. The Prestige or Marathon Man? I'm still going the Prestige. Why? I The twists and turns in this film are what what get me every time the marathon marathon man's a, a great film a great thriller but the prestige i think is structured so uh, in such a special way that it takes you to a place where you realize by the end that in a way you've been tricked and you've been watching this magic trick the whole time i think that it, to me it just feels like there's so much more uh power in the structure of the prestige okay all right, I'll go with the prestige. All right, that's what I'm talking about. All right, the prestige or all the president's men. We're getting right up there, boy. See, this is a I that was a series uh, between Marathon Man and All the President's Men, and uh, I mean this sort of era of filmmaking was pretty. Uh, I I had a yeah. Uh, I I have good to go connection the, to. I I know. I have to go with All the President's Men. It's. As much as I love that magic of the prestige, All the President's Men is truly, I think, just one of the most uh, powerful films out there. So yeah, I, I yeah, I think so too. I mean, those performances. When you look at these performances of these two men, uh, Christian Bale and uh, Hugh Jackman against De Niro and um, uh, his little friend. I mean, <laughs> Robert Redford. <laughs> De Niro. I'm like, wait, which which one is that? <laughs> De Niro and his little friend. Oh my goodness! Uh, I was uh, not in this. <laughs> what? Who? Who is this? Uh, you know, Robert Redford and uh, and his little Dustin friend. Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> his other seventy six. Yeah, you know, it, it's that the the uh, that that's a that's a uh, a much more powerful buddy movie. <laughs> Uh, let's go with uh, you sold that one well. All right, let's yeah, move I, on. I've derailed <laughs> the prestige or dark city. <laughs> I would go with the prestige, yeah, I'd go with the prestige, the prestige or the French connection. Huh. Um, I am going to go with the prestige, yeah, that's that's a really hard one because the French connection is just such an absolutely brilliant film. It really is. But on this one, I you know, I, I think it gets back to the twists and turns. You got me thinking about the twists and turns in your little monologue a few minutes ago. And right. and now I'm thinking about the the sort of gamesmanship of this movie that I think is so fascinating rather than the bull in a china shop kind of just sort of linear plow through of of uh of um you, you know. Yeah, I'm with you. Whether I'm... whether or not I do in fact pick my feet in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> well, I'll go with the prestige. Right. You, you sold me. All right, the prestige or the treasure of this year, Madre. We're hitting tough I, ones. It is. This is a tough one. You know, I, I, on, on this one, I think I'm going to go with Sierra Madre. Yeah, I, I think I am too. I, it is the sequence that that earns it for me. Is uh, is is the, uh, the when he goes nuts. Yeah, uh, coming down the mountain. That's too much. There's just so much stuff in Sierra yeah. Madre that just makes that just a brilliant film. Uh, all right, there. 
Uh, there we go. We uh, are at uh, number 14. 14? That's pretty high. That's pretty good. Yeah, not bad. I mean, it's no network. <laughs> it is no network. What uh, What are we doing next week? Next week, we are jumping all the way to the to other 2006. 2006. <laughs> We're going to watch The Illusionist. Yeah, where so. I, I, I yeah, I'm I'm excited to watch this movie. I don't have a, a as good a memory of it as I thought I did, particularly in the context of the Prestige, which I I I've always liked more than the Illusionist, and so I'm. I've I'm only curious. seen the Illusionist the the one time. I really enjoyed it when I saw it, but I haven't seen it since. So I'm excited to go back and revisit it and see what I think of it again. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'd be hard pressed to tell you what it's about at this point tonight. <laughs> yeah, part of it's another magic movie. <laughs> it's that it's that magic movie, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> the Hulk the Hulk guy was in it. Whatever. That's funny. Uh, I'm excited about that one. So that'll be coming up next week, and then we've got our film board coming up the week after that, yep. and, uh, and then we're we're full on into summer, the summer swing. I'm excited hey, about this too. I I have one thing that I forgot I was going to say. Of course you I do. Can I still say it. Roll it. Christopher Priest, who wrote the novel. Uh, the Prestige. On his website, he actually wrote a book called The Magic, the Story of a Film, in which he looks at, from his perspective, in a way it's kind of an autobiographical look of himself watching the novel getting adapted to a film, what he thought of it, what was the nature of the characters, how did that change as the film was made and everything. It's it, it's a... It, looks like a really interesting take on a novelist looking at his work being modified from one uh, type of work to another. looks like an absolutely fantastic uh, story, and it sounds really interesting. We can put a, a link up for that one on the, in our show notes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, definitely want to check that out. And, you know, I started the book some time ago. I realized as I was uh, preparing that I actually have the book sitting here on my iPad, and I... I just haven't ever finished it. I don't know why. I think it's a good book. Have you read it? I haven't. I haven't, but it does sound interesting. Yeah. It sure does. Yeah, I, it I sounds like interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, this is good. We should do Fantastic. this again. All right. All right. Let's let's try it in a week. What do you think? I'll be here. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show 
by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.